Broadway strong arm squad. Between calling him every gutter name she could muster, she developed the theme that he had made her come upon this voyage of which she had hated every minute and now had not even the grace to be ill. Mike Rogo, unable to placate his wife, eventually fled the cabin, followed by her curses. Dr. Frank Scott the doctor was not an M.D., but a doctor of divinity, telephoned Mr. Richard Shelby of Detroit and said, Hi, Dick, and got back, Hi, Frank. How's the family standing up? Okay, up to now. Scott said, There goes our squash game. I'll say. If this stops, we might have a try this afternoon. Right. See you at lunch. Okay, Buzz. The two men had been drawn together during the cruise by common interest in football and athletics. The Reverend Dr. Scott, no more than five years ago, had been Frank Buzz Scott, Princeton's All-America fullback, all-around athlete, two-time Olympic decathlon champion, and mountain climber. Richard Shelby, Scott's senior by some 20 years, traveling with his family, vice president of Cranbourne Motors of Detroit, in charge of commercial vehicle design, had been a useful end at Michigan in his day. Mrs. Timker, director of the Gresham Girls, the dancing troupe connected with the floating cabaret which had been entertaining thrice weekly throughout the voyage, though considering herself in the last throes, still had the strength to send around a message to the members of her company, No show tonight. One of the dancers, a thin girl from Bristol, Nona Perry, with red hair and a pale, somewhat too small face, who should have been sick but was not, said, Oh, goody, I can wash my hair. At 11.30, the only three passengers visible in the smoke room were an English alcoholic called Tony Bates, his girlfriend, Pamela Reed, and Hubie Muller, a lone American from San Francisco. The Englishman, who had been nicknamed the Beamer, and Pamela had their legs coiled around bar stools, which had been firmly screwed to the floor, while the barman served them their double martinis in deep whiskey tumblers to keep them from slopping over as the ship canted. Neither of them were suffering from hangovers or mal de mer, as they were both amiably and hazily drunk and had been since the night before and on through the morning, not having been to bed at all. Muller, a wealthy bachelor of no occupation in his early forties, man about Europe and darling of every mama with an eligible daughter on two continents, had wedged himself, feet up, into one of the leather corners of the smoke room with a book and a half bottle of champagne. He was not ill, but the book was bad, the champagne would not stay in the glass. The cruise had not been particularly successful for him, and he was bored stiff. The ceaseless swooning of the ship he took as a personal affront. In his cabin, Mr. Rosen, a retired delicatessen owner, queried his wife, Are you all right, Mama? You feeling all right? Bell Rosen replied, Certainly. Why shouldn't I be feeling all right? Mr. Rosen, who in his striped pajamas and hair must, 
managed to look like a small, plump child, said, I hear everybody is pretty sick. Well, I'm not sick, said Belle. She was a fat woman whose bulk almost filled her bed, and she had so managed to plug the remaining space with pillows and a suitcase that she was fairly well immobilized against the motion. Down in the ladies' hairdressing salon on D-deck, the hairdresser struggled to work on a blonde, shoulder-length wig that had been sent down to her by Mrs. Gleason of Cabin M-119 to be washed and set with instructions that it be delivered to her no later than nine o'clock that evening. Marie, the hairdresser, was wondering when and where Mrs. Gleason was going to wear it if this kept up. In Cabin M-119, five decks up, Mrs. Gleason was beyond caring about anything. Another widow, Mrs. Reed, was not only desperately sick, but suffering mental anguish as well over the disastrous turn the voyage had taken for her. In part, its purpose had been in the hopes of finding a husband for her rather dowdy daughter. Pamela had had the bad taste to become appallingly infatuated with the most unsuitable man on the ship, and with whom she was now no doubt drinking at one of the too many available bars. Completely unaffected by the nauseating motion was Miss Mary Kinsale, spinster, head bookkeeper of the branch of Brown's Bank in Camberley, near London, a reticent, tidy little woman whose outstanding feature was a huge length of glossy brown hair, which she wore drawn tightly back from her face and coiled into a tremendous bun at the back of her head. An attempt at having breakfast served to her in bed had been unsuccessful since the movement of the vessel had made it necessary to suspend all tray service, and she was hungry. She had picked up her telephone, asked for the dining room, and inquired, Will there be any lunch today? To which the rather horrified voice of the assistant chief steward had repeated, Lunch? Miss Kinsale at once said apologetically, Oh dear, I don't mean to be any trouble to anyone. The voice at the other end also apologized. No, no, madam, not at all. It's just that we hadn't been expecting many. We'll be only too delighted to have someone to serve, but I'm afraid it will be only cold food. We shan't be cooking in the kitchens. Oh, that will be quite all right, Miss Kinsale replied. Thank you so much. Anything will do. Not even in the twenty-seven or so days of the cruise that far had she been able to accustom herself to luxury treatment or overcome her shyness at being served. When at one o'clock in the afternoon the dining-room page came staggering along the slanting corridors striking bim-born-bum-bim on his portable xylophone gong, he collected only a meager pied-piped train of followers— they came from their various quarters on main and A-decks, lurching, slipping, sliding, clinging onto the guide ropes that had been put up, shouting warnings to one another, negotiating the stairs a step at a time since the lifts were not running. Thus half a hundred or so hardy souls gathered in the dining salon below on R for restaurant deck. The Shelby family, Richard, Jane, his wife, Susan, their 17-year-old daughter, and Robin, aged 10, made their slightly raucous way inching down the grand staircase. 
For the fifth time, tubby little Manny Rosen struggled to his feet with an attempted bow to say, "'Welcome to the Strong Stomach Club!' His wife, Belle, said, "'Oh, stop it, Manny! Ain't it bad enough without you making a joke!' The Rosens had a table for two on the extreme port side of the dining salon by one of the big square brass-bound windows. Next to them, Hubie Muller occupied another table for two by himself. He also had a standing reservation for a tete-a-tete table in the observation grill topside, in case an intimate friendship should occur during the voyage. All the tables along the windows were twosomes, but the others seated up to eight diners to promote get-togetherness. Close by the Rosens and near one of the entrances to the serving pantries, from which the stewards emerged with their heaped-up trays, was the one named the grab-bag table by Susan Shelby for its mixture of persons. Its full complement numbered the Reverend Dr. Scott, Miss Kinsale, James Martin, the Rogos, and Mr. Kiranos, the third engineer officer. Miss Kinsale and James Martin, the Evanston haberdasher, were already there when Mike Rogo arrived alone to receive his induction speech from Manny, who added, Where's Linda? She quitting on us? Rogo said, Linda ain't speaking to me. She thinks it's me rocking the boat. As the Shelby family staggered to the adjoining table, the ship heeled over again, catching young Robin Shelby without a handhold and yelling, Yeah, 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 yeah! All the way, he shot down the side of the saloon to collide violently with Mike Rogo and bounce off him onto the floor. Wow, he said. Robin was a sturdy boy who was going to be as athletic as his father.